this is Contra Radio from Contra.spot. David Jameson here, editor of Contra.scot. Very glad to be joined by Tara McCormick, who's a lecturer in international politics at Leicester Uni and very outspoken voice from within the academy, a critic of NATO, a critic of Western foreign policy, and someone who um, has written extensively about the intersection between foreign policy, state capacity, democracy, sovereignty, and the ways in which foreign policy, and particularly a time of war, can undercut the rights of populations in countries, and the ways in which uh, Western foreign policy can both promote instability abroad and degrade the democratic rights of populations at home. Tara, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me, David. Pleasure to be here. I just wanted to begin by asking you about your impressions of the last 18 months um, in terms of the public debate, the public discourse around the war in Ukraine, because I suppose, for me, I don't remember a time when the public square has been so constricted, um, when there's been such a uniformity of ideas and attitudes um, on what other, otherwise might be a very contentious issue. Um, but my memory of politics in this regard only goes back to um, the anti-Iraq war movement, maybe slightly the, uh, the much smaller movement against the war in Afghanistan. So my formative political experiences are of a very large body of public criticism of Western foreign policy. And it's surprising for me to find just how uniform the official kind of public debate is on, on foreign policy now. And But I don't remember things, of course, like the, um, the war in the for, former Yugoslavia. It's kind of before my um, engagement, I suppose, with, uh, with, with public affairs. Can you remember a time when it, when it has been as bad as this? No, I think it's been absolutely extraordinary. Um, I think there are, there are many parallels, which you may or may not want to pursue, with what the COVID consensus, mm. um, to use uh, Thomas Fatsy and Toby Green's phrase of the COVID consensus. I, see we, I think there's a real war consensus, and I think it's just extraordinary, um, the utter lack of discussion um, in the mainstream media, but even the so-called uh, challengers such as GB News, um, which, for example, is quite challenging around COVID. Um, you know, we are engaged in a proxy war with a nuclear state, and you would not imagine it. Instead, the war is presented to us entirely as our humanitarian intervention wars used to be presented. You know, here's a state, we're going to be triumphant, we'll sort it out. But of course, this is a nuclear armed state. We know we've got special forces in Ukraine. We've sent long-range missiles. We are allegedly to be part of the um, jet coalition, so Zelensky uh, tells us. But it's not just that. Last year, for example... Boris Johnson extended, and this is just incredible, Britain's nuclear umbrella to Sweden and Finland. Now, do how how many how many of us even know that? I mean, it was announced one day 
Johnson jetted off to Sweden and Finland announced that that was it. Actually, the same with the AUKUS agreement. Again, the, this was announced. I think it's, it is an absolutely extraordinary consensus. There is zero discussion in the House of Commons, House of Lords, um, you know, apart from Peter Hitchens, of course, <laughs> there's zero discussion in the so-called mainstream ma- media. And I do think that is this is quite a change. I think if one goes back a bit, for example, to discussions in 2013, when the House of Commons voted against intervening against Assad in Syria, they voted yes 2015 to bombing ISIS, supposedly. There was a some there was discussion within the political elite, as we know, the House of Commons voted no. There was some discussion in the media. If we go back, of course, to um, Iraq and Afghanistan, well, Iraq we know was Britain's largest ever anti-war demo, you know, and there was a small but serious discussion within the media. Seamus Milne, of course, people like John Pilger. You know, it's it's incredible to think that the at, at this time someone like John Pilger would be writing for the mainstream media. Um, you also had a, again a very small, but nonetheless vocal number of MPs, particularly Labour MPs, kind of old lefty MPs such as Tony Benn, who were um, tireless and very vocal critics of Western foreign policy, um, and that has just gone it's absolutely incredible we do not have a word to disturb the war consensus no one not one no one is saying oh well I say Sunak what might be the consequences of sending long-range missiles that Ukraine will use to strike inside of Russia and the arguments have been made well British public opinion is fairly supportive of supporting it um, Ukraine, but what we're not asked, but there's, but it's very difficult to work out because there is no public discussion. There's no discussion about consequences. I mean, on the on the issue, for example, of arming Ukraine, what I think has become apparent is, so there was the famous incident, for example, where um, a number of left wing Labour MPs signed a, a, a position paper by Stop the War. Um, it was fairly kind of uh, moderate, just you know, saying it opposed the invasion but wanted peace talks and so on. Wouldn't peace talks be a good idea? Yeah, and so this, but this was uh, on on pain perhaps of expulsion. I think every Labour left MP unsigned the petition <laughs> and adopted this idea of you know we have to send weapons to Ukraine. What I think is interesting about that position is that it comes with absolutely. Since that has been announced, that position by figures on the left, no further conditions have been placed on it. So it's no. not like, well, we're in favour of sending some arms, but not others. It's not like, you know, we're we're in favour of sending arms up until X point or whatever. It's just carte blanche, which, of course, was the intention of getting the parts of the left to sign up for that demand in the first place. It's just to sign up a blank check, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, under Starmer... There is no alternative to the Atlanticist foreign policy. Corbyn did present a little bit of an alternative, thinking back to his 2017 foreign policy speech. Um, but under Starmer, there, you know, it is clear there is to be 
absolutely no debate when it comes to British foreign policy. And that letter was extraordinary. You know, the mildest of uh, calls for peace talks or well, negotiations might be a good idea at some point, but even that was not permitted. From your vantage point in the academy, um, what has been the what has been the intellectual mood there? I know that you were the subject of a somewhat alarming incident where there was government intervention over your public comments near the start of the war. What what was that situation, and what's the wider culture in academia? Yeah, I mean, I guess the wider culture in academia has been, I would say, since the nineteen nineties. There has, I would say, been much more of an acceptance and support, I would argue, maybe some colleagues would disagree, of uh, Western foreign policy. For example, in the 90s, when we have um, humanitarian intervention, that, you know, a lot of foreign policy academics are quite supportive of this idea of Western power being used um, supposedly to protect human rights but, you know, there, there was, of course, some contestation, but broadly, there's quite a shift in the 90s, I would say, amongst academics to being quite supportive of Western foreign policy. Iraq is a bit of a change. Everyone is allowed to hate the Iraq policies. Everyone is a critic of the Iraq policies, but that's more of a blip. So broadly, I would say in the the academy to some extent follows the kind of mainstream opinion when it comes to that or certainly political class opinion and it's quite problematic to be seen to be critical as in really critical of the foreign policy not say well maybe we could do it in a bit of a nicer way um so certainly at the start of the war it was quite interesting the government did actually contact I, I was denounced in the house of Comments actually by um, the chair of the education committees at Halprin, which I was quite sad about because I thought he was quite sensible about COVID. But when it came to, he was quite sensible when it came to COVID, but denounced, uh, you know, supposedly for being a sort of Putin apologist and all this kind of thing. And yes, the government did get in touch with my university. I was interviewed by Radio Leicester. There you go. Talk about a excitement. And I made the argument that did we wish to have a situation in which academics could only say things about foreign policy that the government agreed with? And actually, thanks very much to my university, we were very supportive of that position. But it was quite an interesting period in, in that the government was obviously worried. And again, I was hardly tweeting anything more concerns about the implications of the war. You make a good point there about um, the distinction between Iraq and wider ideas about humanitarian and intervention i think up until the war in ukraine i was fairly complacent in thinking that the doctrine of humanitarian intervention had been dealt a really serious blow and i mean i was i, I understood of course because i was on the demonstrations in 2003 that um they were very broad right a very broad selection of of opinions there was quite a lot of kind of liberal this is a mistaken policy, you know. There was there were even sections of the movement who were sort of like, we need a, a UN mandate <laughs> to, mm. to invade and destroy a country. Um, in the demonstrations in Scotland, there were some kind of odd manifestations of kind of Europeanist ideas. You know, you had um, 
I remember people saying, you know, hold, holding pictures of Jack Chirac and so on and demonstrations and saying, you know, saying things like make, make baguettes, not war. Um, so that kind of uh, francophile anti-war politics. But, you know, when you have a million people in the streets, you're going to get some incoherent ideas. Um, and it is true that Tony Blair's government made a mistake in uniting such a broad element of the population against him over... Uh, such a key policy but I did think you know perhaps the doctrine of humanitarian intervention has died in Iraq yes I think yeah it's a bit more I so if think if one thinks back to or forward to 2011 the Libyan intervention Mm. which was an ostensibly humanitarian intervention conducted by those great that great humanitarian outfit NATO that was actually um fairly well supported both in terms of popular opinion mm. one of the key one of the reasons that it is argued it was supported is because it had some kind of un mandate behind it the uk un security council resolution which uh, authorized intervention to protect human rights and notably if i recall correctly china and russia abstained on that which is basically the way in which the security council says okay mm. But then what was quite interesting about Libya is that what also happened, as we know, is that um, Britain pushed for regime change. I mean, we can debate humanitarian intervention. I'm a critic of it, full stop. But Britain then pushed for uh, regime change and also, interestingly, used special forces to support jihadi groups, as was reported. Some of those, of course, uh, included the uh, family of the Manchester mm. bomber, as we know, whose family were allowed to travel to and from Libya as they were anti-Gaddafi. That was an instance of humanitarian intervention being seen to be successful huh, and also fairly supported. But also the government then used covert means to push further than was supposedly allowed. I put them verticals by the UN Security Council resolution. And we also saw that in Syria, particularly 2013, as we know, Parliament says, no, we're not going to join in with the US bombing campaign against um, the Syrian government, which also stopped the US as well at the time. But instead, what happened was a massive shift to covert means of intervention, funneling billions, mm-hmm. anti-government um, militias, as we know, as uh, actually, and, and was ultimately, or part of it certainly was stopped by Trump in um, 2017. So, that, so there's quite a lot of interesting things. I think humanitarian intervention still has a lot of legs unfortunately thinking and we, we saw it again with uh, the withdrawal from afghanistan uh, at least the repeating of a lot of the tropes of the war feminism type thing because i mean in scotland yeah. in particular i mean our then first minister nicola sturgeon she insisted that troops stay she was opposed to the withdrawal in 2021 in total on the grounds that we needed to stay and save Afghanistan's women, presumably from Afghanistan's men, which is sort of was my introduction to the hardcore version of liberal interventionism. I remember the the arguments about sweeping in and saving um, an entire nation's women from an entire nation's menfolk, which, you know, uh, viewed in those times 
sounds like what it is, which is a very utopian uh, and sort of wild <laughs> um, yeah. ideology and, and sort of imperial project. Yeah, and and that was a, 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 a you're complete. I I agree, and and also that relied on an entirely false picture of Afghanistan, as if under um, you know British and American rule or rule by British and American support supported um, governments, Afghanistan had become Switzerland. You know. Mm. There were small pockets women could study perhaps in Kabul. But of course, outside of Kabul, life in Afghanistan continued as it had been, you know, so that so at that at during at the time of withdrawal, and, and there was some good commentary on this that you know that there was an entirely yeah false narrative fright presented as if well we're going to withdraw and it will be throwing millions of Afghanistani women back into the clutches of the Taliban, but the reality, yeah, like life outside of very small pockets in some of the cities and even pockets within the cities, life carried on as it had, uh, you know, grinding poverty. The the origins, I feel like, many for many of these ideas about liberal interventionism were obviously during the the war in former Yugoslavia, which I know um, you've covered and, and 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 researched, how special and how important was that a moment? I mean, was that the birth of this kind of everything's World War Two? Because that's obviously become a huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. everyone's Hitler. Yeah, every everyone's Hitler. But I do feel like World War Two, in in seriousness, it, it has become. I I can't remember his name. I know there's an academic who's made this point where he basically says. World War II has replaced the Bible as the kind of civilizational text <laughs> of our society. So every major cultural production, the bad guy is a Hitler-like figure, you know, like um, Darth Vader or whatever. Like, every, you know, uh, uh, the head of an expansionist empire and a totalitarian society. And, of course, every foreign policy intervention is about stopping... Munich, yes, and every refusal yeah. is appeasement. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite interesting. I can't speak so much to other, say, European states, but certainly in the UK, I would say World War Two is, for the British state, the last time that the British state could kind of confidently frame a really positive narrative about itself um and i think probably in britain we are a little bit more obsessed with world war Two. i know that occasionally some colleagues from other countries have commented on that from other european countries but yeah certainly what happened well I, in fact i would i would go i would go further even to gulf war one mm. um where you have the real kick starting or kicking off of this idea that the West was going to be a force for good, if people can look at um, Bush Senior's New World Order speech, you know where he says, "And from now on, we're going to have a just world in which you know the strong will no longer tyrannize the weak, um, etc." And that was part and parcel as well of broader discussions about the end of the Cold War and this sense that foreign policy had been, quote, sort of frozen by the external necessity imposed by the Cold War, that we'd had to concentrate on hard security rather than human rights morality. I mean, in reality, the Cold War was incredibly moralised as a, as a legitimating narrative 
um, incredibly, it couldn't have survived, you know, the sort of policies couldn't have survived that, you know, good against evil, etc. But there was, that was the discussion around the late 80s, early 90s, you know, now we're going to be, we will be free to um, intervene and help support human rights. And this discussion also comes from within the UN. So you have the famous agenda for peace, Boutros Boutros Ghali, for a report when he was then Secretary General, until ironically, he lost his job because of what he said about Bosnia. But that's a different thing. Um, the agenda for peace, where he's saying, you know, get, we've been unfrozen because of the end of the Cold War. And we have to understand, there's a great quote where he says, the age of sovereignty is over. The age of absolute sovereignty is over. Um, you know, it was never really, it never really existed in reality, and now we realise that we're going to states are going to have to find some kind of compromise between good internal governance and all this sort of stuff. So, so you have the all, all these kind of discussions really emerge. So late eighties, early nineties, this idea that you know we can be a moral force for good in the world and go around the world protecting human rights and helping women, um, and then certainly I think there were in the breakup of Yugoslavia and the um, brutal civil wars that ensue as a part of that breakup, which I would say also was a highly internationalised conflict mm. uh, from the start. You see many of these trends really coming together and Serbia is cast as the new Nazi Germany and, you know, what is basically a complicated civil war fight over citizenship territory becomes framed as this moral absolute yeah and I, and I think that did that is important because it does sort of set the framework Boutros Boutros Ghali actually lost his job essentially or you know lost favor with the Americans because he went to Sarajevo and made this fairly controversial speech in which he said something along the lines of look I can show you 10 worse wars going on mm. he said something like this is a rich white war and after that he was he was it's like no you are not reapplying for secretary general um so that's quite an interesting sub-story to the whole discussion very faintly remember a few moments from the the wars in former Yugoslavia. One was NATO's accidental bombing of oh, yeah. Chinese embassy. Yeah, and and there were also there was a bombing of Kosovan civilians, and uh, a, there was a brief moment where the kind of hubris of the West role in the war was sort of pricked. But you know, we were seeing dribs and drabs. We weren't seeing. We there was no that I recall serious focus on the bombing of Belgrade. I mean, I remember it happening. But we didn't really get a sense of the extent or the fact that this was, the, you know, the, the bombing of a major civilian uh, area, which, I mean, the coverage, for example, of the bombing of Belgrade and Russian bomb attacks on, say, Kiev is night and day, right, in, in terms of how the how the, uh, the media treats it. But I did get, start to get a sense both from that war, and I'm assuming that this was the same with um, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, and it was certainly true by the time of Ukraine that people in Western countries, I mean, ordinary people, working class people, don't have the right to criticize, don't have kind of it's selfish to, to oppose war, that when a, a country invades another country, whether it be Serbia fighting against Kosovans or whether it be Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait or whether it be Russia invading Ukraine, at that point, the bulk of the population loses a right 
to discuss yeah. foreign policy because and that there's a selfishness to uh querying what the foreign policy of one state should be so that's quite a clear kind of instance of the kind of eroding of the idea of popular sovereignty and it having any relationship to to foreign policy yeah i think again and just also there's sort of a few things that are worth thinking about you know with this shift to the kind of new world order to trademark the highly moralized framework that the west attempt, attempts to kind of shift in in the 90s to justify western policy um because this is running alongside obviously the end of the soviet union and a domestic kind of depoliticization as well uh, for many aspects of policy say in the UK, things are being shifted in the 90s into the kind of technocratic Bank of England made, made independent, mm. um, supposedly. Uh, you know, there's a big academic literature on what goes on there. You have also at the same time a kind of, so what you, you have a sort of diffusion of domestic politics and a flattening out of class interests, as we know, and parties in the UK in particular, and this has been well covered, become you know, meet on the centre ground, become kind of catch-all parties rather than representing specific social interests, mm-hmm. class interests, more specifically. Um, so what you don't have anymore is any background kind of political support in a way. You know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even in the 80s, you had that small kind of political opposition to policies to British foreign policy for example Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whereas in the 90s it all becomes framed in this kind of free-floating moralized way so to be against western policy is not to be politically opposed to actions your state is taking for x y z reason it is simply to be immoral Mm -hmm. you know and the right moral position so I, th- I think there, there's, I'm probably not explaining it very well, but there seems to be, there's there's that relationship of kind of depoliticization on the one hand, and then foreign policy becomes framed in these very sort of moralized, you know, Hitler versus the angels. You know, I absolutely get that. And, you know, there, there are, I mean, again, to return to the Iraq and why it was a disaster for New Labour, I think perhaps they put themselves in a position where they couldn't win the moral argument. But the problem is that, you know, four times out of five, let's say, the state does have, if not a monopoly, on what's moral. You know, the establishment, you know, morality is uh, is ideology. It's, uh, it's not some separate um, kind of world of ideas. And uh, typically, those with power decide what is and isn't yeah. moral. And it is very much the argument you have to have with people when it is over something like Ukraine. The moment you start talking about politics... Right about well, what will be the impact of sanctions on Europe's populations, for example? Automatically, there's a horror that you have spoken about something so narrow and materialist as sort of class politics. Well, at a time what are when our interests? Our interests, like the the idea is, you shouldn't be discussing your interests um, at a time when um, immoral things are happening. Immoral things we can we can prevent. I mean. This is marginalia, perhaps, but at the start of the war, I remember this, and but I've and you get these kind of 
letters to Western leftists every time there is opposition to intervention. So there were these letters around Syria, you know, when the when the people were opposing um, a British intervention against Assad, you had a similar kind of thing of um, sort of NGOs issuing letters um, demanding that people in the West uh, re-examine their conscience. Um, it's very much in that language of how could you deprive us of the right to de uh, to defend ourselves? Um, so even in that, as you say, there's this total inversion of uh, and, and an exchange of politics for morality. It's accepted that politics, interests, material interests, democracy, these are tawdry concerns. They're beneath us. And what we should really be concerned with is this great moral cause of um, imposing supposedly Western liberal norms at the point of a gun, and that is the moral thing to do. Um, so, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, with that insight, and it's become very corrosive to the conversation on foreign policy. It's seen as not a political question anymore. All foreign policy questions are kind of theological. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really good way of putting it. You know, and and that's. Um... Yeah, and that is a real problem ultimately for um, democratic debate because, you know, who would be against what it means to be a moral <laughs> person? And then, and then the, this thing happens where the moral intervention leads to a total, totally amoral circumstances, well, like in Libya. Oh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, you know, we've had, and one of the great, the excellent achievements of that sort of shift to a totally moralised foreign policy is that it has eradicated all political understanding of the West, the West's role externally. You know, it's just how I learnt for the, especially on the left, you know, how I learned to love, stop worrying and love NATO. I mean, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like it's it's a sort of year zero. Mm -hmm. the, what, what the role of the West historically, um, the role of Western power historically, you know, and certainly that in the during the Cold War, which was an era not known for lack of intervention, obviously, nonetheless, this idea of sovereignty and non-intervention was very much, you know, however much it was ignored in in reality. It was certainly seen as a norm. It was constantly re-supported in UN um, General Assembly resolutions because particularly the developing world understood what the role of Western power was. And it wasn't to come and help help people, but it was a pursuit of Western interests. And that, and that has been completely... So it's almost like a year zero. And that, has been, that sort of discussion has been completely... Eradicate. I think there are obviously problems thinking, well, what exactly are the interests in certain interventions? It's this in, it's an interesting point. I don't know if you read the piece um Lily Lily Lynch wrote for Unhard, where she says that NATO since the end of the Cold War has, you know, people have started to think of it as like the UN. Yeah. It's not thought of in a sense as a, as a military alliance or yeah. well yeah and and there's been an there's been an attempt to reframe NATO absolutely as a values-based organization also 
interestingly, post-Cold War, we see real um, coordination between expansion of the EU and expansion of NATO. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So new member states are kind of expected to sign up to both. Um, so, yeah, that is, I think that is absolutely true. It's been understood as a kind of values-based organisation to sign up to which is now expected for new EU member states because that is how you become part of the Western values-based order. Mm. EU on one hand, NATO on the other, and it is seen as a part of, uh, quote, democratisation, etc. Quite an alarming development. And yet during the Cold War, I mean, because I suppose it might have been some people's expectations that NATO would disappear with the Cold War, but you couldn't have had such a kind of fantastical image of what NATO was during the Cold War because everyone was aware, whether they supported it or not, that it was an artifice of the Cold War itself. And, you know, and part of this kind of world standoff between NATO and the Warsaw Pact and and so on. Now, you could look at that and say, well, I think it's a good thing. It's necessary for our mutual security. Or you could look at it as most on the left did and say, and at least be suspicious, right? It was an impediment towards lasting peace or an impediment towards a democratised Europe or whatever. Freed of its Cold War role, it's now seen in a much more spiritual way. And it goes back to that, that sort of depoliticization because what everyone thought of NATO, and within Britain, it was part of this, what's called the post-war consensus on domestic and foreign, domestic issues and foreign issues. Again, cross-party support basically for NATO but also kind of quite low salience for the public, for example, apart from at certain periods, say, uh, 56 and so on. Um, but at least it was it was understood politically, as you say, exactly, as a, as a political military response, well, response stroke driver, but a part of the Cold War conflict. And, uh, yeah, so now, again, that has also, NATO has also become totally depoliticised, a moral good that countries need to sign up to for their own improvement, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, for spreading uh, peace and love across uh, the world. It's, again, it's a real problem for any kind of discussion. Well, I don't know how much it is a real problem for most normal people, but it's certainly it is a discussion that will not be had anymore in the media or amongst certainly the British political class. So this is something I wanted to ask you because it's, I mean, I think at the time of the war, one thing I did think was when the war, when the invasion took place and there was this hysteria among elites, really, what you didn't see was pro-war marches, like spontaneously from the public. Now, if you go back into European history, you'll find that there were spontaneous, there was spontaneous support, for example, for the First World War. There are instances where there is real popular enthusiasm, often fleeting, uh, for wars. We really didn't see that over Ukraine. You saw an intense attempt to coordinate that sentiment on the part of the elite. You even saw, I mean, at one point, I remember there was a march in London um, organised by the state. And this went so little commented on, uh, which I thought was peculiar, because I can't remember the last time the British state organised a pro-war march 
<laughs> I know that was absolutely peculiar. But in any case, it wasn't large. And there isn't a widespread feeling of investment in the war because, as you've said, the backdrop here is a substantially depoliticized society, an attempt to depoliticize society. Hasn't that kind of, I mean, that has also hurt the state as well in its capacity to engage the population in its priorities. I mean, I don't, you see that my fear is, I was just going to say also, I was thinking about the Homes for Ukrainian Refugees scheme. That seemed Mm. to me also very much part of this kind of public attempt to garner support um, to some extent. But see, I'm not really sure that the government cares anymore. Mm. I don't know. I, I, I think that's the that's the real problem. I think the government is quite happy. In fact, it prefers to be able to do things without actually having to engage. Well, all, all it needs is a sort of semblance of legitimation. And I think that's one of the really interesting things to me, but the sort of lessons from Iraq it seems to me that one of the real lessons the government took from that is, all right, that wasn't great, actually. Although repeatedly, and again, there's a problem with public opinion polls, as we know, you know, methodologically, limit to what the broadly British people do support Britain being a kind of benevolent actor in the world and so on, but within limits. Mm. So we saw post-Iraq and also post-Afghanistan, public opinion polls became quite uh, unfavourable towards the war, uh, did not support British soldiers being there. So, so there's a bit of a, maybe not schizophrenic, I think this is just a limitation of public opinion polls, but British opinion tends to be, you know, yes, we want to be a good actor in the world, no, we don't want our soldiers to die in these uh, conflicts. But I, So I think the... British government is quite happy just to have an appearance of consensus and then continue just sending over the long-range missiles, send the special troops in, which, of course, we don't talk about anyway. Mm. That's uh, plausible to know. You know, we have a, the government has an official no-comment policy and all this because then it can continue to pursue the foreign policy, the cross-party consensus on foreign policy, which is basically, I would argue... Atlantis position. Um, at home, we have a semblance of legitimacy created by schemes like Homes for Ukrainian Refugees. Uh, you know, all the public buildings fly their Ukrainian flags, which is just quite astonishing to see kind of, you know, local council flying the Ukrainian flag. Mm-hmm. So you have that. Yeah. So you've got this weird kind of dynamic of, you know, we, uh, and then also the presentation of the conflict in the same way, as I said, that humanitarian intervention was presented. You know, we're just going to throw it, we'll send these long range missiles, it'll be fine. You know, it's just like Libya, it's just like Iraq, it's just like Serbia. We're the good guys here. But of course, the problem is that this is now against a nuclear armed state and mm. Russia is not Serbia or Libya or Iraq. They're ultimately small states that just had to, you know, as the kids say, suck it up. And we don't get to control Russia's responses. Um, So I think that's another problem as well. The British political elite is so unused to fighting. It's it's, Or it's so used to basically clobbering on smaller states who can't respond. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and yeah, and and, and that means potentially a a kind of more drawn out war. Well, if we're lucky. That's if we're lucky. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because if it ends suddenly. um, Yeah. Very badly. But... um, 
before we get on to the, the, the war proper, I just want to stay with this theme for a second, because it seems to me this is the nub of so many political problems. And the, and the problems for anyone who thinks that they are a socialist or on the radical left um, in, in contemporary society, as we've discussed the recent decades, what we call neoliberalism, and I think for too long on the left, was thought of principally as an economic platform, right, for the marketization of services and so on, which it clearly was, but it had this wider political and sociological yeah. dynamic of what you've described, the, the systematic depoliticization of society. Just, yeah, yeah. So that that I think that is a really important point to make. Neoliberalism, which I think also is why a lot of the left loved the COVID policies. They thought the state's finally back. Mm. But of course, you're totally right. Neoliberalism is a long-term political project. It is a technique of statecraft, to use a slightly academic term. And what it, it's about governing in a different way. And the key part of neoliberalism is basically to remove the public from policymaking. And that is the nub of it. That is the heart of it. It's to remove, it's to depoliticize policy, to remove and the public from, to remove us basically from governing. I had, um, I had sort of consoled myself in the years between 2014, you know, the referendum, 2016, 20. With Brexit referendum 2017, with the well, Corbyn doing better than expected in the the general election and the growth of certain types of public participation in politics, because of course hundreds of thousand people joined the Labour Party, joined the SNP. What I find remarkable at the end of that period of disruption is the extent to which, because you also you know you had people saying um, Starmer won't dare kick out the left from the Labour Party because they're the foot soldiers. Well, what's become apparent is they don't want that participation. <laughs> they don't want mass political parties, right? Which, I mean, is, is obvious from the history of neoliberalism because it, yeah. one of its key features is it saw a significant collapse in numbers of people participating in trade unions and political parties and church groups and volunteer organisations and everything. But that they are so determined for this that they would actively resist any attempt by the population to buy into their own system. And what you've outlined there of, in a sense, they might not want people on the streets protesting for the war because that opens Pandora's box, right? I suppose what I want to ask is, do you think there's a possibility, though, that ultimately this is an extreme, this is a contradiction in modern capitalism that it could ultimately backfire on states and elites themselves? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess some of the arguments, you see, I, I really don't know. I, I have, uh, uh, you know, colleagues who um, argue otherwise, um, but I don't, uh, and that there are ways out of this. I just don't know at the moment how, I don't know how we can get back in there. Um, I think one of, one of the recent discussions, well, certainly Brexit, Trump, has been that populism is a kind of response to this you know, neoliberal pushing the people out. And there is obviously some truth to that. But then if one thinks about the Brexit vote, the sort of accidental referendum, which Cameron called and then was horrified to discover that people actually voted as they voted uh, to get, leave the European Union, I think the political class has pretty much clawed back from that now. Brexit has is just again a sort of technocratic thing. I will get Brexit done, but without actually, or as my 
friend and colleague uh, Peter Ramsey and Phil Cunliffe and George Horovagi and Lee Jones, you know, it's only the first step towards democratising the country, but whether that can be done, because the political class sort of treated that as a just a technocratic thing to be completed, boxed off. We have so-called populists such as uh, Maloney in Italy, who, you know, talks a good talk on the culture wars, whether one, although obviously there's a lot more to be discussed about that, but is fully signed up to the European Union supporting Ukraine I don't really know what the next step is for those of us who do think democracy and sovereignty, meaning self-government, is important. Tara, thanks very much for your thoughts today. I think it brings, I think what we were saying about depoliticisation makes a lot of sense out of the war and its kind of strange course and especially the domestic environment around it. Um, So that's been very interesting. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much for having me. It's been, uh, yeah, great to have a chat with you. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Contra Scott.